invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Are we on here? Am I on? Okay. Uh, we're looking at the 28th chapter of Acts, and we're going to, in some ways, reread what we've been looking at previously, but we're going to come at it from a different angle today. Uh, the first 15 verses of the last chapter of the book of Acts. Uh, chapter 27 talked a lot about the storm uh, as, they, as Paul and other fellow prisoners are being transported to Rome. And, uh, and they had a shipwreck. So here we go, 28. And when they had been brought safely through, through the storm, then we found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us extraordinary kindness. For because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. <clears throat> and when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, then they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off <clears throat> excuse me, into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading men of the island, named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it came about that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery, and Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. And after this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. And they also with, honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they, supposed, they supplied us with all we needed. Now at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship, which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. And after we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day, out, uh, and a day later, a south wind sprang up. And the second day we came to Puteoli. And there we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Let's pray. Lord, again, we pray that you would help us. We need help. We thank you that the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us in discerning what was in your mind, the author of these, this portion of your word. And we pray that your spirit would teach our hearts, would point us to Christ, and help us to understand what it is that you want to teach us and say to our hearts today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'll never forget that Sunday. It was an extremely cold Sunday. But Joyce and I decided we were going to go ahead and fulfill our commitment. We had agreed to do something there as part of the service, and the temperature outside 
was minus 20 degrees. We were living in North Chicago at the time. I was enrolled in seminary. And of course, our car wouldn't start, but another friend called us and said their car would start. So they picked us up, and off we go to church. It is freezing outside. Well, church uh, was there, didn't have as many people, uh, obviously, as normal. Uh, But after church, guess what? Numerous cars would not start, including the car of the individuals that brought us to church. So what do you do? At that point, we're stranded at church, and we're hungry, and it's bitter cold. So this family at church, who lived near the place where we were worshiping at the time, Open an invitation. Anybody can't get home, come on over to our place. We'd love to have you. So, as I recall, the day that they invited us, they were planning to have a birthday party for one of their small children. But here on that day, they opened their hearts, they opened their homes to those of us who were in need of a warm shelter, for sure. We were in need of some food, and boy, could we stand some good companionship in a crisis. So here they are. They added probably six or eight people around their little house, and we all enjoyed this amazing lunch. It was amazing because of its graciousness and the kindness and love that offered it to us. Unplanned, unannounced, unexpected, it just happened. And Joyce and I witnessed on that day, I believe, a wonderful, memorable modeling of what selfless sharing and selfless serving looks like. Well, we're in this story here of the Apostle Paul, and he himself is someone who is on the receiving end in this passage of numerous situations in which he is ministered to and he receives the service of other people and his selfless sharing. He is the Apostle missionary church planter who comes and washes ashore along with a hundred other people, a couple other hundred people with him, and they have just survived a terrible shipwreck. Obviously, they're exhausted, they are drenched, and they're chilled to the bone. And they have no resources of their own to help them. But the people of the island, we read there at the beginning of the chapter, they, they size up the situation and they prepared a fire and sought to offer uh, uh, some sort of uh, way of helping to receive them given their needs. Now, the gesture was so appreciated, it was acknowledged here in the text. Luke is someone who said, wow, that was an amazing kindness to us because that's what we needed at the time. And they described it in verse 2 as showing to this massive number of people who have washed ashore extraordinary kindness. I looked up that word kindness even this morning in the original language. It comes from where we get the word Philanthropy. That's actually the word there, kindness. Philanthropy, that is benevolence. They gave us so generously. You see, hospitality for these people was a lifeline at that moment. All this odd collection of soldiers and, and, and prisoners washing ashore, and that was what they needed at the moment. And later in the travels... The ship that they all now board and they're going to leave from Malta and they're going to head back to Rome, head up to Rome, they end up stopping over in this place called Putioli, verse 13, and there they found some brethren, which means what? Paul and, the other, and a couple of the other believers with him 
connected with other believers. And this group then reached out to them and welcomed them for seven days. Said, please stay with us. And they did. And later the group finally reached Rome and the believers, when they heard that Paul had arrived, started gathering from all different points around that area, 30 miles away, 40 miles away, they come and they meet them. And the impact of all of these things collected together was not just something that was a ho-hum, eh, you know, no big deal. No, it made a big impact on the Apostle Paul and those with him. These acts of welcoming and receiving and serving. Notice what it says in verse 15. Paul thanked God and he took courage. He realized God had finally gotten him there, but along the way he had shown him much mercy and many people who welcomed him and encouraged him. The ministry of hospitality is desperately needed in our world today. Just like it was needed in the first century, because guess what? All of us have practical needs. All of us have, we eat every day. We all want to belong. Countless people hunger for human connection, for human interaction. And yet so many people in our culture today eat their meals with a screen in front of them. Not interacting with anyone directly, humanly, uh, human. And more and more people live lonely, isolated lives. A growing number of people have adopted the motto that my house is my castle. And I pull that moat, I pull that, uh, that uh, drawbridge up and I find security on the other side of that moat, which is my garage doors that go down, and that's it. I'm finally home. People remain, prefer to remain aloof from their neighbors up and down the block. What a change from years ago when everybody knew everybody on the block. They knew all their kids. Everybody knew everybody. Seems like we also see a trend on the opposite side of that, that side of the equation of where we are as a culture. We also see a trend in our, in our society when social media, which loves to post on there all sorts of pictures of, of perfection in entertaining. Maybe you've seen some of these. They, they focus on, on preparations. They focus on eye-catching uh, uh, tables and decorations on the table and centerpieces. And they, they focus on gourmet dishes that are prepared with very complicated recipes. And Pinterest oftentimes will post uh, that, and portraying the perfect host or perfect hostess and they've got this house that's, you know, house beautiful and, and life where everything's neat. Everything's in order. Everything's creative. Everything is impressive. Where do these people live? I don't know who they are. What kind of reality is that? But you see the two extremes? People longing for belonging. They're longing for connection. And there are people over here who are portraying themselves as perfect in their own little perfect world over here. Somehow that just doesn't seem to connect. That's why I'm glad that as we think about this topic of Christian hospitality, we want to find in the middle here the important ministry that God has called us to. You have on the one hand a group of people looking for love, looking for community, and on the other hand you've got a people who are 
insecure, I believe, ultimately, who are afraid of what other people think. They never portray themselves as having a messy house. And they would never want someone to come over unless they see their best life. And ultimately that says, I, I am so concerned that you might see me as being less than perfect that I don't really think it's a safe to have you over very often, unless I control it very carefully. So I want to place before us this morning this ministry of compassionate caring for other people in what I call open-hearted hospitality. It's so important to understand that's what we're saying when we say hospitality. It's open-hearted hospitality. I want us to consider three components of Christian hospitality in your notes there in your bulletin. First is we want to consider the grounds, the grounds for Christian hospitality. Why do we do this? Well, first reason is clear enough is that Christian hospitality is mandated. It's something to which God calls his people. It's not optional. It's not intended only for, well, let's say this select people over here. Uh, the Bible doesn't say only those people who are mostly outgoing, uh, who live in a larger home, those people are called to the ministry of hospitality. No, it doesn't say that in Scripture. Christian hospitality is meant to be a way of life. It's meant to be a widespread practice. And I think I've recorded some of those verses uh, that talk about these things in the New Testament. First Peter chapter 4 says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. So it's something we do, but we do it without doing like, oh, do we have to do this again? No, it's not like that. There's to be a sense of joy in it. There's a sense in which this is a wonderful thing that we can benefit from as well as the people to whom we're sharing our hearts and our homes. Uh, Romans chapter 12 expands on what it means to practice authentic love. He says, don't, don't be hypocritical in your love. Practice authentic love. And then he gives some specifics on how we do that. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints. That is, practically help other people that you know of who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Practice hospitality. Now, why is that? Why does Scripture keep calling the people of God, the followers of Jesus, to practice hospitality as a lifestyle? Well, I would just like to answer it this way. Start off by just saying God is a hospitable God. God opens his heart to welcome those who are desperate. He opens his heart and, and welcomes those who are needy. If you read through Ephesians 2, and I encourage you to reread this sometime with this idea in mind, and maybe you want to follow along there, Ephesians 2, verse 11 and following, there's a time in which we had people with ethnic backgrounds. There were the Jewish folk over here, and there were the people who were non-Jews over here. And boy, they didn't have much in common with each other at all. Didn't associate with each other, and did not feel welcoming to each other's groups. And the gospel comes in and begins to affect this kind of dynamic in the early church. And Paul points out in Ephesians 2, Gentiles at one time, that is non-Jews, were cut off, excluded from the covenants of promise. They're without hope, without God in the world. That, that, that is any unbeliever in the world. But God, through Jesus Christ's vicarious death, brought those who were far off, and Jesus is our peace, and he's the one who has made both groups now into one group. 
And Jesus broke down the barrier of that dividing wall. And Jesus has reconciled both believing Jew and believing Gentile, and they've been brought to God through the cross of Christ. The result, verse 19, he says, you who now make up the church, you no longer are strangers. You're no longer aliens, people who are left on the outer fringes, people who are left out. But now you are fellow citizens with the saints, with believers. You are members of God's family, God's household. It's because of what Jesus did to serve and help those who were cut off from the life of God, who were destitute, who were never ever going to enjoy a fellowship with Christ. It's because that Christ took the initiative and offered himself to bring down this wall of barrier Everyone who believes in Christ, everyone who repents of their sin, they are welcomed to the table of God. Each believer is no longer an outsider, no longer a stranger, but they are a member of God's family. Every true believer belongs. I love the way Jesus explains this dynamic in the kingdom of God. It's just so radical to the people of that day. They just could not get past this idea of, you know, the people of God versus everybody else. And so parable recorded in Luke 14, you might want to make a note of that one too to look up because Jesus talks about a man who sends out an invitation to various people all over the place. And he says, listen, I'm having a big celebration, a big party. I want you to be there. And here's approximately when it's going to happen, within a certain time frame. And when the time comes for the people to come to this once-a-lifetime celebration, I mean, this would have been the big deal, like the, the celebration of the century. And the time comes, they said, okay, it's now being prepared. It's now time to get yourself ready and get there for this great celebration. What a privilege to be invited to come. And what do they do? They offer these lame excuses. I mean, just ridiculous things, you know? And, uh, and so the man in the parable who's inviting all these people, he sends out invitations to those then, beyond those who were just invited because they don't seem interested, he now invites, it says, people who are considered unworthy and unclean. The people who are not welcomed, the people who are not included. They had nothing to offer the one who was inviting them. There was no way they would ever be able to return the favor. Those are the people who were offered. And God in the gospel of grace invites any and all to his feast. He welcomes all types of repentant sinners. Those who will admit their inability to save themselves. And then lastly, I think of this picture of hospitality that's portrayed in the book of Revelation and where we read of Jesus when he has so many religious people making up the church in Laodicea. They are unsaved religious people. And he speaks to them and he says in Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. I think what he's saying there is, I'm going to return soon. I'm coming back. And he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, which means you're going to repent, which means you're going to say, I'm not going to, keep my distance from you any longer. I'm not going to have other pursuits and go on with my life as if you're really 
uh, someone who's unimportant. No, he says, Jesus says, I will come into him and I will dine with him and that person will dine with me. What's he saying there? Jesus is saying, I am promising you a shared meal. A shared meal in that culture was really a symbol of affection. It was a symbol of intimate fellowship. Incredibly amazing that Jesus would extend this kind of offer to people who at one time had no interest in really knowing him. But this is the kind of forgiving and gracious Christ we have. So here's my, here's my summary then. If you look at the quote there in your notes, Alexander Strauch comes out with a very helpful grounds for Christian hospitality with this reminder. He says, The gospel itself is a gracious invitation to come and enjoy God's home and enjoy the lavish banquet for eternity. That's what it means. It means to think about the whole reason we offer gracious hospitality is because God is a, is a welcoming. God is a, a, a loving, gracious person who welcomes us to come and be a part of his family. So my first question is, have you begun to taste and understand and know what that's like? That you're welcomed by God through Christ? That he really wants to spend time with you? That he welcomes you to that that closeness, not that you keep a distance, but that he welcomes you. No matter what your background, no matter where you're coming from, no matter how much you felt like you've been far, far away from him, he welcomes you in the gospel. Won't you come? That has to be the beginning point. Otherwise, everything else I say in the sermon will not make any sense. Those here, I would like to also have us consider not only the grounds for Christian hospitality, what is the goal of Christian hospitality? What are we trying to do here? I would suggest to you the goal of Christian hospitality is not to impress other people. Boy, we've got to make sure that's clear from the start. It's not about impressing other people. What is it about? It's about serving others. It's about meeting the needs of other people to make them feel welcome to make them feel wanted. See, when we offer to open our hearts and our homes, we strive to refresh people both physically and spiritually. Jesus was the host of the Passover meal, right? Right before he died. And so he, he secures a place to go. They go to the upper room. And so they're gathered there. And so they all have this awkwardness because there's no one there who has done the normal procedure, it's almost like someone taking your coat on a cold winter day. You come in the house and you got this coat on, you're like, well, what do I do with my coat? You know, you know. And so someone needs to take it and put it somewhere where it belongs. Well, Jesus says, all right, I'm going to get down and I'm going to meet the practical need you have, and that is to have your feet washed. And so he does. He washes their feet. He shows them practical love. He opens his heart to them. During the meal and after the meal, he begins to tell them, listen, these are my plans. This is what's going to happen. I'm giving you an inside track so you understand what's going to be taking place here. I'm going to speak to your fears. I'm going to help you prepare for radical change that's coming very soon. And so he gives them a heads up. 
And as you think about times when you've been invited to people's homes and what's been shared there, I know in my life I've sat around some tables, some situations where, I mean, we were cramped. You couldn't hardly move your elbow, right, to, to get your food in your mouth. It was just crammed in there. I've been in some places where it's been elaborate, formal dining rooms or just incredibly uh, nicely arranged and things. But you know, the memories I walk away from experiences through the years have been not so much the food that I consumed. I enjoyed the food, believe me. But it wasn't just the food. What I remember, what was the most significant thing you walk away with was the connection, was the bonds of love, was the kindness shown to me and the expressions of mercy that were celebrated around those tables. Brothers and sisters, over the years have, have blessed me with listening ears. They have listened to me tell some of my story. They have offered their compassionate heart toward me and, and uh, Joyce through the years. And also there have been situations where people would offer wise counsel in the middle of situations that we talk about. They've not just merely filled our stomachs, although I'm not complaining about that. I like that. And it's a wonderful need that we want to have filled, obviously. But they have filled my soul with God's love by imitating Christ and welcoming acceptance shown to me. And so that's one of the goals. Is, it's not to impress the people, it's to serve them. Secondly, another goal would be for Christian hospitality is to open the door of opportunity and open the door of our hearts to people that we may not know very well in order to minister to them. To minister to people in simple and uncomplicated ways. It's, it's uh, interesting how, and really undeniable, that Christian hospitality, it doesn't require maybe as much as sometimes we think. It does require preparation, I grant you that. Food has to be purchased, it has to be prepared. Uh, there has to be some form of uncluttering the dining room table or whatever table you use. It needs to be cleared off, at least on some measure. Uh, our dining room table ends up being our second office sometimes and so we have computers here and stacks of papers and all over the place so we sometimes have to clear all that out so there's some work advanced yes but by definition it is a simple means of impacting other people with compassion it's not doesn't have to be complicated as we serve people and feed people and listen to them and seek to understand the issues of their lives we connect on a deeper level. Yes, there's laughter, but sometimes there's crying. That's okay. We have opportunity to, to, to have people see us and to hear our story and for us to hear their story, understand where they're coming from, where they've been, and where they are. And I love the fact that when you open your heart and you open your, your, your heart and your home, is that they see us. People can see us as ordinary, imperfect, weak people who struggle, who fail, who drop things on the floor, make a mess, who have stains on their tablecloths, uh, people who have fussy kids and messes in their house. It's okay, because that's who we are. We're not perfect people. 
It's great to be able to be free in that sense. We're given an opportunity to experience on some level community and relational connection. And all this doesn't, doesn't require some complicated you know, organizational chart. Well, I've got to make sure I get approval by this person and that person, and I've got to call this guy and make sure I fill out the form and find if this is available. No, nah, it's not complicated. Not in that sense. What's complicated is finding people that have time. Oftentimes we'll ask numerous people to have a meal with us, and we don't, you know, we understand. People got plans. Boom, 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 boom. I'm going here, going there, going to, you know, it's like you have to plan far ahead. Okay. Sometimes it's worth making the effort. But it doesn't take a complicated, complex committee. Just be flexible, be frugal. You don't have to have serve fillets, uh, uh, filet mignon. You don't have to have lobster every time you have us over. It's okay. But, but the point is, relax in our familiar surroundings. And one effective way, it seems to me, to, to prop open the door of opportunity, to get into people's lives and begin to, to have opportunity to minister to them, is to learn to ask good questions. In the context of opening your heart and home, get, prepare yourself with a couple of good questions that are designed to get them to talk and you sit and listen. Things like, tell me a little bit about what life was like when you were growing up. Or asking the question, how did the two of you meet? Or what's your favorite memory of a family vacation or a holiday? Get them to talk and express where they're coming from and what they know. And then another good question, what's God been doing in your life recently? Wow, that could take you in 16 directions depending on what they say. Well, there's the way they sort of prop the door open a little bit. But how do you do it logistically? Well, plan ahead, as I said, that sometimes is required in our day and age because things are a little more complicated, people's busy schedules. You have to plan ahead to invite somebody to join you after church or, you, or later on Sunday evening, uh, Sunday afternoon. You can invite your neighbors over sometime for a meal or a backyard barbecue. You can uh, look for people to add to your holiday celebrations, which is what Joyce uh, alluded to with her folks. Inviting international students to join you for meals. Uh, invite someone to join you at Wendy's. If you don't have a place, you don't have it's not easy for you to, to host people and where you live. Okay, well, meet me over here. We'll go here and share a little meal together and uh, share a cup of coffee at some point with the intention of listening and talking and having a good conversation. And I would just suggest another way. This may be a little radical. If you're a student in school, where you eat your lunch, that cafeteria is all about little groups where you're accepted or you're not accepted. Be a welcoming person. Hey, have lunch with me. I don't mind. You can join my group. What a great way to extend hospitality in your own way to people who always sometimes will feel like I don't fit in. Nobody likes me. Uh, here's another goal here for Christian hospitality. Practically speaking, we want to offer support. We want to offer assistance, if you will, to those who are in Christian ministry. We take this from 3 John. There's three epistles, three letters that, Paul, that, that uh, the Apostle John wrote. The third epistle of John is written to a man named Gaius, a member of a church that apparently John was familiar with. 
Um, and so he's encouraging this idea of an open heart, open home hospitality. He says there in verse 5 of 3 John, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, that is, these traveling ministers, these traveling evangelists, and especially when they're strangers, people you don't know, and they bear witness to your love before the church, and you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Interesting, as if you're welcoming, as you welcome them into your home, you are going to serve them as if you're serving God himself. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support or receive as guests such people that we may be fellow workers for the truth. That's the part we play sometimes in showing them hospitality and helping them in practical ways. In the first century, all these evangelists, itinerant evangelists, would travel around from town to town, and they're not going to stay in some sort of you know, commercial lodging. They're not going to stay in the Holiday Inn or the, you know, the Comfort Inn or whatever. Uh, they would stay in people's homes. And today, we have the privilege of opening our homes to people who sometimes could uh, stand to have a place to stay. Missionaries on furlough, having them for a meal, having them stay in your home for a weekend. Uh, we've done that many times. And how, what a blessing that's been all those different times. Uh, sometimes our guest speakers come through or other groups of Christian college students will come through until so you open your home and, and, uh, and you extend hospitality to them. And all of this, of course, they depend on this kind of, of low-cost accommodations, which enables them to continue doing their various ministry endeavors. And in the New Testament churches, I gave you a list there in your notes, has numerous examples of people opening their homes, helping in ministry opportunities there. And as a corporate sense, it's interesting that our church has a very unique opportunity to have hospitality, and that is we have an apartment here in which we've made available for many people over the years to extend the time for them to stay there, to find a place of refuge, to be able to have a place where they can uh, know they're not disturbed and they have no cost, uh, any kind of great cost associated with staying there. It's a wonderful ministry, and we hope to do so even next spring when we have uh, the Schwams coming back to see us uh, and, and minister here again. Well, uh, let me think real clearly. Let's bring this down and, and uh, land this thing uh, as we think of our third point, and that is what are the, we looked at the grounds and we looked at the goals of Christian hospitality. Thirdly, what are the gains? What are the things that are good results from all this? Well, there's too many to list. But I'd just like to suggest, if you look at, read the book of Hebrews, if you're willing to entertain folks and open up your heart, you never know who's going to be your guest in your home. He alludes to, in chapter 13, the fact that some people in the Hebrew Scriptures, they invited folks who stopped by and, and were at their doorstep. You want to stay? Would you like something to eat? They were angels. They didn't even know they were angels, but they entertained them unawares, totally in the dark. You never know who will be that person you're welcoming into your home. And third, secondly, I'd like to also say, when you open your home and you have children or grandchildren, they learn so much through that experience. They learn to share. They learn to serve. And they're learning to hear stories and hear experiences far beyond their little world. And they gain a tremendous education sitting around that table as they listen to others 
who are uh, normally not a part of that um, process. And I would also like to say hospitality is a transformative process. You can't really measure how the impact on your own life, on the lives of other people, when you share yourself in practical love like that. But hospitality expands the reach of the gospel and the gospel influence by integrating ministry into very practical, everyday living. By sharing dessert over a table and coffee, or sharing a meal, or offering to, to uh, uh, have someone uh, come over and you include them in your, in your barbecue, whatever it is. Hospitality gives you an opportunity now to become more integrated into their life and that they see that you really care about them. You're listening to them. You're, you're understanding who they are, where they're coming from. I came across a quote this week by Bob Smith of Bethel College. He wrote, 90% of evangelism, and he's a person involved in, in ministry to Muslims in a place where he, they're in Minneapolis area. 90% of evangelism, he said, is love. That's a, that's a thought-provoking quote when we think about how willing are we to get in law, involved, roll our sleeves up, and serve other people. Sharing our lives, our homes, is one of the most loving, memorable things we can do to help communicate the message of Christ's love. It doesn't all happen here, folks. It happens where we live in our regular, everyday life. Another thing that is a gain of Christian hospitality is that simple hospitality reinforces a stewardship mentality. What do we mean by that? Well, there's a quote in your notes here by Karen Maines where she says, Entertaining says, I want to impress you with my beautiful home, my clever decorating, my gourmet cooking. Hospitality, on the other hand, seeks to minister. Hospitality says, this home is not my home. It is a gift from my master, and I'm his servant, and I use it as he desires. You see, hospitality does not try to impress, but to serve. And so that's so true. And all of us who belong to Christ, we are to share his resources as he gives us opportunities. And I realize some of you are in situations where it's not, not practically um, something you can do as much as you maybe wish you could do. And I understand there are limitations depending on what's going on in your life. You might be already caring for people, uh, elderly folks who live with you. Those are all things. But if we do this ministry as best we can with a heart that's not grumbling and complaining about it with joy, to me it's such a countercultural phenomenon. It's just not something that's, uh, that's done that much in today's world with the motives of which Christians are doing it. We feel more connected to other people, and I imagine they're going to feel the same with you and me. I'd like to close with just about three questions here. And these are the questions I hope are going to bring it right down to where you live. And I'd like you to think about specific answers to these questions as your takeaway from today. First question, what would our church look like if more of us practiced Christian hospitality? What would it look like if more and more of us practiced that on a regular basis, made it a lifestyle? Second question, 
what is, who is one person, one person you will include in some hospitable way into your plans in the next three weeks, four weeks? Who's one person that you will seek out and include in whatever way you can with some of these things we talked about? And lastly, what can you do to become a more warm and hospitable person to those around you? That's really where it all starts. When we answer those questions and say, Lord, thank you for welcoming me and being such a hospitable God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have opened your heart and your home to people like us who are far, far away. People who have turned our back on you. People who showed no interest in you. People who defied you. And yet how gracious, how loving that you would go to such a great extent, make such a sacrifice, a painful sacrifice, to welcome us. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the forgiveness we find in Christ. Thank you for how you desire to not just keep us at arm's distance, but to truly uh, welcome us into an intimate relationship with you and to find acceptance through Christ to enjoy you. Lord, I pray that through that blessing of being welcomed by you, that you would make us a welcoming people. Help us, Lord, not to just think about these things and to give intellectual assent to it and say, well, yeah, that all sounds good and it's, it's, a, it's a helpful thing to do. Lord, help us, we pray, to think specifically of how we can put these things into action and that you might use us in the ordinary things of life to be on ministry, to be on task as your ministers, to show forth your love, to serve others and to minister to them through the help of the Holy Spirit, for your glory and for the good of others, that they might know you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.